good to be together this morning, worshiping, praising God. It's good to have the Watsons back with us. <clears throat> As Kurt said, um, in the Pew Bibles, uh, I think it's page uh, 975 is where you will find our passage. Um, there's a song from the early 80s uh, titled, What's Love Got to Do With It? Anybody familiar with that song? <laughs> and it's aptly titled because what the singer sings about in the song really has nothing to do with love. It's, it more, it's uh, more to do with lust, probably, than love. And um, I believe that the question posed by this song is also an apt question for every Christian to ask themselves, and it's a question that begins to get answered um, in our text today. Um, But before we can answer what's love got to do with it, we need to answer the question, what is love? There are are three Greek words that are commonly used to express three different kinds of, of love. The first is eros, which is never used in the Bible. Um, It refers to a sexual or erotic love. It's the kind of love we often associate with romance. Um, The second is phileo. Uh, It it and its derivatives are used roughly 40 times in the New Testament. It's where we get the name for Philadelphia, the city, city of brotherly love, because it denotes affection and high regard for friends. But the love that our passage today and the vast majority of the New Testament references is the Greek word for love, agape. This love is referenced more than 300 times uh, in the New Testament. Whereas eros and phileo have a tendency to be motivated by self-interest, self-gratification, and self-protection, agape love is distinguished by its lack of self-interest. It proceeds out of a heart of care and concern for others. It is the love that is found in the very character of God. It is the love of God and the very love that God is. It's not mere emotion and feeling. It is grounded in action and sacrifice. It is not simply a warm affection for a brother or sister. It is the love that lays down one's life for his brother or sister. And as we will see from our time together today, or hope that we see through our time together today, it is by this love that we have received freedom, and it is unto this love that we have been freed. So up to this point in Galatians, the Apostle Paul has, for the most part, stressed the truth of freedom from the law in terms of our salvation, freedom from the guilt that the law lays upon our conscience because we are breakers of it, freedom from Futile striving after our own righteousness for for right standing with God. Freedom from from the legalism that stands on the sands of self-righteousness and not on the solid rock of Christ, Christ's righteousness. That true freedom from slavery to sin comes only by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul has already set up the guardrail on on the legalist extreme of things, And in our passage this morning, he's setting up the guardrail on the licentious extreme of things. Legalism and licentiousness both have their root in self. Legalism says it's what I do that makes me righteous. 
I am the source of my righteousness. It leads to self-righteousness and the judgmental better than attitude condemned by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount that um, Brother uh, Ronnie spoke of earlier. Licentiousness says that I am already righteous in Christ and I can do whatever I want. It leads to debauchery and a total disregard for the love of God in Christ. They are both a disregard for Christ. The gospel is found in neither of these extremes. It is found in knowing that my righteousness before God is not my own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And that the correct response to such a great and loving gift is to reflect that same love through obeying God by serving one another. And we all have tendencies to to one of these two extremes, or maybe even both. We all vacillate between them, and and it is the tending towards these extremes that, that leads to the biting and devouring and the consuming of one another that Paul speaks of in our passage today. So it's my hope this morning that we might have our gospel compasses calibrated more to do due north. Uh, that joy in the Christian life, that we'll see that joy in the Christian life is not to be found in burdensome legalism or wanton licentiousness. That true joy comes from serving others and not self. And that through loving service to one another, we will also cultivate a greater unity amongst one another in the truth and in love and be drawn closer to our Savior and Lord. So from our text, I want us to see that Christian freedom is rightly expressed through serving others, not in just doing what I want. And there are three things that I see from the text that are necessary for this right expression of Christian freedom. The first is control of self or self-control. The second is love to and of others. And the third is obedience to God. So if you would, read with me Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So the first necessary component to our expressing our Christian freedom through serving others is self-control that I see here in this passage. Uh, verse 13 says, But I say, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says here, these Galatian Christians were called to freedom. According to the gospel, no person is truly free until Christ has rid him of his guilt before God. And Paul says it is this freedom that these Galatian believers have been called or summoned to. And this is true for all believers. Our Christian life didn't begin with our decision to follow, our decision to follow Christ. It began with God's call for us to do so. He took the initiative in His grace while we were still in rebellion and sin. In this we know the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God called us to Himself. In that state, we, were, we neither wanted to turn from sin to Christ, nor were we able to. But He came to us and called us to freedom. 
So does this freedom from, from guilt before God include, include freedom from every kind of restraint and restriction? Is, it, is Christian liberty just another word for anarchy? God forbid. Paul sees that all of this talk about freedom up to this point could be misunderstood in this way. Uh, so he's, he's wanting to get out ahead of it and be clear that freedom in Christ is freedom from the awful bondage of having to merit the favor of God. It's not freedom from all controls. And that's why he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Flesh here is the word used in Scripture to refer to our fallen nature, which is, which is twisted with self-centeredness and prone to sin. And uh, the word translated opportunity here is often used in military context for a place from which an offensive is launched, a base of operations, a vantage ground an opportunity or pretext. So our Christian freedom is never to be used as a pretext for indulging our sinful nature. It is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. <clears throat> it, is, it is an unrestricted liberty of approach to God as His children, not an unrestricted liberty to wallow in our own selfishness. It is a freedom to walk by and be led by the Spirit, not um, freedom to indulge the works of the flesh. As verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> and in verses, sorry about that. And in verses 22 and 23 of this same chapter in Galatians, there's a, a, a list of the fruit or the virtues that the indwelling of the Spirit produces in our life. We're all very familiar with the, with the fruits of the Spirit. And we'll get more in depth individually uh, with those in a subs subsequent uh, uh, sermon, Lord willing. But for our time today, and specifically for this point, I want us to focus on the fruit of self-control. Uh, very often we hear that love is mentioned in this list um, because all, first, because all the virtues flow, flow out of love, and, and that is true. But I see love and self-control as kind of the bookends that hold these, these virtues together, and we even see that in the order. We see love is mentioned first, and, and self-control is mentioned at the end. Uh, without love and self-control, it's very hard to be patient. Without love and self-control, it's very hard to be kind. Without love and self-control, it's very hard to be gentle. And without self-control, it is very hard not to misuse our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. Um, and uh, two areas where I think that lack of, of spirit-wrought self-control leads to an opportunity of the flesh and leads to biting and devouring of one another uh, are, are in the areas of anger and in taming our tongue. Um, uh, Alexander Strach, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, he wrote a book, a whole book on just this passage right here. It's called, um, If You Bite and Devour One Another. Uh, and he says um, about these areas of self-control, I'm convinced that most conflicts could be resolved with minimal damage to individual people and to the church if we brought both our anger and our tongue under the Holy Spirit's control. In fact, handling conflict biblically requires that we control our anger and our tongue. 
And when these two areas are left unchecked, they will most certainly lead to the consequences of biting and devouring one another, as Paul refers to in verse 15. One of the most important biblical principles for handling conflict constructively is control our passion of anger. Bits of anger are mentioned as works of the flesh in verse 20, just below where we're at now. Unrestrained anger is how we most viciously bite and devour one another. Um, and, and we have principles for handling anger laid out in Scripture, and that is to be slow to anger and to control our expressions of anger. God himself is slow to anger, so we as his children should be too. The Proverbs are replete with references to the value of being slow to anger. And, and this is just... This could be a, a good little Bible study. Just read through the Proverbs and see how often it, it speaks about controlling our anger and controlling our tongue. There's a lot. Uh, Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit um, than he who takes a city. Um, James 1.19 and 20 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce righteousness that God requires. <clears throat> I myself, and I don't know about you, fail at this miserably a lot. If you don't, if you don't believe me, ask Jocelyn. So, <laughs> so, so um, and, and just to be clear, I, w- I want to be clear that, that the Bible never says not to be angry, never be angry at all, ever. Um, anger is a normal human emotion that, that everyone experiences and an emotion that God himself experiences. Um, Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Yet, unlike our anger, his is perfectly controlled and just. We should, <clears throat> we should be angry about the things God is angry about. Abortion should anger us. The, the normalizing of, of homosexuality and the, the pushing of gender ideology on our children should anger us to a certain degree. The downplaying of, the sec, of sexual immorality amongst our own ranks should anger us to a certain degree. <clears throat> but anger that is not controlled by the Holy Spirit and the principles of God's Word will destroy God's people and the witness of the gospel. The church is its own worst enemy. When it comes to this, anger is like a fire. Controlled, it can be used for heating and cooking, but out of control, it will burn down a house and destroy everything in its path. We are commanded in the first part of Ephesians 4.26 to be angry, but do not sin. And our natural tendency is to sin when we experience anger. We let anger fester and consume us. We let our anger grow uncontrolled, which plays right into the devil's hands. That's why the second half of verse 26 tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger. If we are angry towards someone, we need to address it and resolve it as soon as possible in a spirit-led way. Because if we don't, it grows into bitterness and gives the devil an opportunity to wreak havoc in the life of the believer, and in a congregation. Now, taming the tongue. Uh, Uncontrolled anger, you can bet, will result in an uncontrolled tongue. They kind of go hand in hand. When we are angry, we often say things that we wouldn't otherwise. 
<clears throat> and in a way that we shouldn't. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. With what we say, we are either building up or we are destroying, destroying, biting, and devouring. James says the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we praise our God, but we also curse those who are created in His image, each other. From it both come blessing and cursing, and this, this should not be. We should always question our motives when we speak. Is what I'm saying or, or going to say motivated by love, by wanting the best for others, or is it mo motivated by jealousy and envy, which are works of the flesh? <clears throat> Looking to prov provoke anger or cause strife and discord. <clears throat> Do I know that what I am saying or hearing about someone else is true or not? then don't say it, or listen to it, or repeat it. It's gossip. 2 Corinthians 12.20 says that gossip, too, is a work of the flesh. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood the fire goes out, but where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. And we should speak sternly where, where Scripture speaks sternly. In confronting and addressing sin, we can't soft-pedal with our words. But we can do that in a loving way, in a loving fashion. So, Christian freedom expresses itself through self-control. And now we will consider how it expresses itself through love to others. Read with me again verse 13, specifically focusing on the second half. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But through love serve one another one another. The Greek word uh, deleo is here translated serve, and it literally means to be a slave, to be a slave. Loving service to others is being contrasted here with, the, with opportunity for the flesh. Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever I want. It's the freedom to become a servant of others and love them as Christ did by the power of the Holy Spirit. In one sense, Christian freedom is a form of slavery. Not slavery to, to our flesh, but to God and to one another. We are free in relation to our standing with God, but slaves in relation to one another. Tom Schreiner says this, True freedom liberates believers from their selfish will so that they find joy in serving others. The redemption that believers enjoy liberates them to pursue godliness so that they serve others with gladness. And God does not leave us in the dark to figure out how this freedom is expressed in this way. He himself in the person of Christ shows us just how Christian freedom in this way in loving service to others is to be expressed. Jesus modeled this, this love, this becoming a slave for his brother. Uh, most clearly, I think, when he washed his disciples' feet in the, in the upper room, recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 13. Uh, this was a common practice in their day because people walked everywhere they went. They, they wore sandals. They didn't have socks to keep their, their feet clean. And there, there were animals that were leaving landmines all over the place. So, so your feet got, got pretty dirty. <clears throat> and the most significant act, aspect of this action of Jesus is that this duty was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. He took the position of a slave 
before his disciples. So Jesus is very clearly modeling for them and us what he taught in Matthew 20, 27, that whoever would be first among you must be your slave, and that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I think one of the greatest threats to our serving, I know it is to mine, is, is the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort to serving in this way, to self-sacrificing service. And we live in a culture where comfort is king and anything that makes us uncomfortable is automatically bad. Um, how am I to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve and bear the burdens of one another if my greatest concern is my own emotional comfort? Um, in order to show hospitality to one another, to have people over, we have to be inconvenienced. We have to, you know, we can't just sit and plop down in front of the TV and, and, and take it easy. We have to inconvenience ourselves some. We've got to cook a little more. We've got to clean a little more. We've got to put up with a few more kids. Um, we can't do that if our greatest concern is our, is our comfort, our own comfort. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. So we serve one another through love when we practice discipline among one another, both formative and corrective. And is discipline a comfortable thing? No. That, that passage actually tells us it's usually painful it's usually painful and, and not pleasant, but it's loving. And it's necessary. If we have a brother or sister who is living in blatant, egregious, unrepentant sin, and our desire for comfort is keeping us from addressing it with them because we're afraid of how they might react, um, we're not loving our brother and very possibly could be sinning by not. And, it, and if you are receiving discipline, loving discipline, know, know that it, it's love you're being shown by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I also have a word for us dads here in, in, in the order of formative discipline. Clocking out at work does not mean we clock out at home too. It is, it is hard, I know it is, and we all have our days where we just want to go home and do nothing, turn on the TV, and, and clock out from whatever we have to do at home. But it's not loving to our children whenever we desire our own comfort over cracking open the Bible and, and leading them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, we, we will all have our days, but to continually, day after day, week after week, choose our own comfort over guiding our children in the Word, we are not loving them. We are not loving them. And one last thing, and I'll move on to my next point, final point. Serving one another through love is more than just fulfilling a, filling a role on Sunday or helping at church work day. Those are good things. We should serve in that way. It's not what I'm saying. We should do those things, and, and we, are, we are loving one another through doing them, but it is more than that. 
It is, it is getting down into the nitty-gritty of each other's lives. It's building relationships with one another so we know what each other's deepest spiritual need is. And I say this to you as one who fails in all of these, too. I want you to know that. I, I, I am the chief of sinners in, in, in these as well. So, um, and it's realizing that we're still a bunch of sinners that need each other. So we have considered self-control as an expression of our Christian freedom, loving others as an expression of our Christian freedom. Now we will consider obedience to God as an expression of our Christian freedom. Verse 14 gives us um, the reason or the basis for our serving one another, for it is a fulfilling of the law. It is a fulfilling of the law. Verse 14 says... For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the basis is that it fulfills God's law. It is obedience to God. And obedience to God is the actual source of true freedom. As I said before, true freedom is not the ability to do just as I want. That is actually license masquerading as freedom. Um, the truth where true freedom is found, we see it in Exodus chapter 4. If you want to turn there with me. Exodus chapter 4. Verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. The Israelites were freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh that they might freed from slavery from Pharaoh, that they might become slaves to God. This is one of, the both, one, one of the beautiful paradoxes of Christianity. True freedom is found in becoming a slave, a servant. True freedom is not a question of whether I'm a servant or not a servant. We are all servants of something, whether we realize it or not. True freedom is a question of who we serve. To serve sin and self is to be in bondage. It is to be a slave under the tyranny of Pharaoh. But serving God is the source of true freedom because it is the very purpose for which we were created. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So when Christ set us free, He set us free to fulfill the purpose for which we were originally created, and that is true freedom. The serving of sin and self results in death and chaos, not freedom. Serving and obeying God only tends to our good and human flourishing and life, the freedom that we were created for. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, in obeying, in obeying God, a rational creature consciously enacts its creaturely role. It is enacting the role in which it was originally created for reverses the act by which he fell 
and treads Adam's dance backwards and returns. True freedom is found in obeying God through the power of the Spirit. So although we cannot gain acceptance with God by keeping the law, once we have been accepted, we shall obey the law out of love for Him who has accepted us and has given us His Spirit to enable us to do so. Another way to say it is that although our justification depends not on the law but Christ crucified, yet our sanctification, our growing in Christ's likeness, becoming more um, what we were intended to be, consists in the fulfillment of and the obedience to the law of God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, Whoever loves me will obey my commands. And just after that, he, he says he will ask the Father and he will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So not only has God set us free from sin and self, but he has actually given us his Spirit to enable us to do so. To enable us to obey him and to love Love him by loving each other. This means that a husband who is free in Christ should ask himself, how can I serve my wife and make her stronger in the Lord? A wife who is free in Christ might ask, in what ways can I support and affirm my husband so that he is strengthened spiritually? And we all can ask, how can I serve others in the body of Christ? That <clears throat> What would the Lord have me do? What can I do with my life? that will help others mature spiritually or bring them to faith in Christ. If you are in my hearing this morning and you have yet to see your need for Christ to be set free from your burden of sin before God, may you be awakened to your need for the Savior. Trust on His righteousness and His death alone for your standing before God. Come to see and know the love that God has for you in Christ that you might know the joy that comes from dying to self and sin to life in the Spirit and the serving of God through the serving of others. So back to our question. What's love got to do with it? Everything. God's love has everything to do with it. And I'm going to close with just some scripture that tells us that. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while, while yet there was nothing lovely in us, nothing in us that was worth loving, He died for us. In 1 John 4, 9 through 12. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a wrath-satisfying substitute in our place, the one who died in our place that took the wrath of God for us against our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray.